everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalethal, Senior Director for NED's International Forum, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. In previous episodes, we've explored how authoritarian regimes have harnessed the proliferation of social media platforms, as well as technologies such as facial recognition software, for the purposes of state control, censorship, disinformation, and surveillance in and beyond their borders. Yet global consumer demand for tech-enabled convenience has also proved a key driver for the technology industry to deliver new products at a bristling pace, products whose negative implications for human rights may not be immediately or fully apparent. Technology consumers may not be aware of how their data is collected and used, how companies, actors, or algorithms are filtering the information they encounter on web and social media platforms, or to what ends different forms of technology are being applied. Democratic governments have struggled to respond, in part because policymakers themselves similarly struggle to grasp the complexities of issues surrounding emerging technology. For many years, the goal of a free and open internet has undergirded the global conversation about freedom, human rights, and economic development. These days, one might ask, how do we maintain commitment to a free and open internet in an era of disinformation and authoritarian manipulation? Or perhaps we might ask if this is even the correct question to be asking anymore. Here to help us untangle the complex relationship that exists between democracy and the tech revolution, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, Marietje Schake, a former member of the European Parliament representing the Netherlands, who's joining Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center and the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Great to have you with us. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about a thousand <laughs> important topics. Yes, it's great to be here. So let me just kick things off and um, start by asking a big picture question. So I was reading a, a piece that you wrote for the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs last year, where you quoted one of the internet's founders, Vince Cerf, and where he said that people tend to conceive of, of cyberspace as hovering over the real world, but not actually connected to it. And I, I feel like this is reflected in some of the conversation around technology now and in sort of this artificial disconnect between technology and how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just talk about from your perspective as a former policymaker and someone who's really been shaping the idea space, you know, why is it that people in general and perhaps more specifically people who are active in the human rights and democracy space really need to fine tune this understanding of technology? Well, I think, and it, it also resonated with me what you said about, you know, democratic governments have struggled to keep up with the technological uh, developments. I think actually this tech exceptionalism, if you want to call it that, has been fostered by a lot of voices in this space, not in the least those representing the big tech companies. Because if you imply that human rights can only be preserved by having special tech policies for special tech human rights, then it implies that you have to start from scratch and that it's a massive effort that you have to take to develop new laws for new technologies. And I actually think it is much more powerful but also more empowering to focus on how you can build on existing laws. And we have a body of universal human rights law, but also principles in most democratic societies. Think about freedom of expression and some limited exceptions or 
non-discrimination. It's simply not allowed to discriminate on the basis of skin color, gender, sexual orientation, religion, age, and so forth. There's also a number of rules on, on economy and, and safety and security, for example. And we have to we have to focus on how we can extend these legal guarantees for people, whether or not their rights are violated online or offline. And so you can say it's a different sphere in some ways, and we're dealing with, with a globally connected ecosystem, which is somewhat different than, you know, the mostly territorially based legacy of law and the more sort of uh, disconnected world, if you want to call it that, analog world. But I don't think we should think about the rights framework differently. Uh, I believe we need to focus on applying it uh, despite disruptions, whatever technologies may come. I, I see this being played out, for instance, in the evolving conversation around artificial intelligence and how we should think about the implications, perhaps the ethical implications of AI. Mm-hmm. Although when I say ethical, I think that that is one dimension of it. And certainly there have been people who have argued that actually there should be a human rights framework applied to AI as opposed to a more nebulous conception of ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you have almost a parallel structure of norms around artificial intelligence that's being pushed by large authoritarian regimes with very little interest in hewing to a human rights framework. I'm wondering whether you see a value in democracies engaging more clearly on the norms conversation in addition to questions of hard law, legislation, regulation, and so on. Yeah, I, I think what you're what you're sharing about ethics is is crucial because it seems to be the answer to every question these days, right? I have not had a discussion about artificial intelligence in the last months or years where there wasn't a focus on ethics and the importance of ethics. But I was recently reading the proposals by a Chinese council for ethics around AI. And when you read them without context, they sound you know, like the ethics that would be proposed, let's say, uh, here in Washington or uh, could be proposed in, in Brussels. It's about human rights standards and about human centeredness and about sustainability and about advancing everyone's economic position and whatnot. But the problem is that the devil is always in the details and that good intentions, whether they've been articulated by governments or, or by companies, are often not enough. You need to have a threshold that is clearly and evenly applied to everyone, but where violations are also held to account. And uh, what worries me about the, the ethics as being presented as, as sort of a blanket solution for all the challenges that artificial intelligence might bring is that it's not clearly written down or identified what those ethics should actually mean or how they should be enforced. So maybe, um, you know, as a start of a conversation, it can be useful, but it should never be the only answer. And there I do believe that human rights frameworks and actually the rule of law is very important because then you can begin to say, you know, we draw a line in the sand and we want to have oversight over the artificial intelligence, which is also very important and lacking oftentimes when it's, you know, commercially deployed, machine learning, uh, algorithms and other products. The whole question of are governments able to legislate is very much tied to the question of do they know what to legislate for? If you don't know what is going on in the machine room, if you if you have no ability to see what the harms could be and how they could be addressed, then it's quite easy for for 
executives of companies to say, oh, lawmakers don't understand the technology. Well, maybe they can start with giving us access or giving lawmakers access to the knowledge and to the details, which are always crucial to get it right. And staying on this theme of the principles and norms that should undergird the way in which technology is applied and some of these uh, technologies that are going to be hitting us in the not-too-distant future, you said that we need to take a look at the universal standards that are already there and build on them. But one of the challenges we face today is that in the last decade or so, there's certainly been an overarching challenge from some quarters to these sorts of values and principles at a very basic level coming from places like China and Russia and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. What do we need to keep in mind if we want to have ourselves positioned best position to deal with these challenges, given the fact that we're kind of defending a rear guard attack at the same time we're trying to figure out ways to deal with the new technology that also needs some sort of framework that operates according to democratically accountable principles. Yeah, um, I understand what you mean that there's on the one hand sort of erosion of democratic principles and uh, adherence to universal human rights within our societies. I mean, it's a you know lively political battle and actually uh, a lot of um, backtracking on rights that you know seemed seem to only be progressing, but they can actually also regress, and that's a very important wake up call. And there's the global dynamics between uh, power players that are non democratic, uh, certainly not respecting universal human rights, that are becoming bigger, uh, more ambitious, more assertive, and I believe that this agenda for strengthening and deepening human rights and democracy and their application, no matter where, is actually one. But I feel like in Europe, too, we have perhaps forgotten to, to stand for these values, perhaps taken them for granted sometimes, because for a long time, the U.S. and Europe, often together since World War II, uh, were the ones leading in this space. And now we have challenges at home, erosions in the rule of law respect within our societies, depolarization here, uh, the rise of, of nationalist, uh, white supremacist, racist, uh, aggressive movements. Um, it is a very, very serious moment in time that we live in. And I can only hope that there is a wake-up call among many people who see that these rights should not be taken for granted and that they can be eroded, whether it's uh, in the streets, let's say, or on the internet, because both of them are part of the same question, which is, which principles do we really want to preserve? Which principles define in every way the quality of life of our people? And what, in your view, based on your experience um, in the recent past, would be most essential to help citizens, certainly those living in open societies, to kind of reclaim those ideas and that vision? Well, I do think there's a massive wake-up call happening, especially in this country, the United States, where for a long time, when I would visit Silicon Valley or Washington, I was accused of being, you know, hypersensitive, uh, perhaps that Europeans were jealous of the success of the big tech companies of Silicon Valley. And, you know, that the only reason why regulations were were proposed was to keep Silicon Valley small and all those kinds of allegations that were very emotional, I thought. And um, what I see now is that there's, you know, after the 2016 
uh, elections, uh, scandals around Cambridge Analytica, hacking of election systems, polarization, the surfacing of conspiracy theories, threats to public health as a result of disinformation, really chipping chipping away through these new forms of reaching people, through these advertisement models online, uh, chipping away at liberal democracy, and that there's a wake-up call in this country. You see antitrust efforts uh, proposed in Washington, which was unthinkable for a while, uh, privacy laws adopted in the state of California, uh, banning of facial recognition technologies in the very area where they're developed uh, in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So I believe that we are going to see a catching up in terms of rules, in terms of regulations, but we still have to be very mindful of how it's being done, because sometimes there can be unintended consequences of regulations, not only at home, but also abroad. And I think it's important to keep that in mind and to always indeed put this human rights agenda, uh, questions of of checks and balances, oversight, redress, to put those first. But um, I hope that this momentum can be used to sort of refocus on the importance of the rights that we want to preserve. I guess one thing that your comment brings to mind is the fact that, I mean, I think it's vital that we have these crucial conversations in the U.S. and other democracies about the implications, for instance, of AI-enhanced policing, for instance. And that's happening in the Bay Area, as you've noticed. And in places where we have conversations with local civil society activists where they're incredibly vulnerable and there isn't space for that public conversation, Mm -hmm. it almost seems as though there's a parallel ecosystem that's being developed, one where the impetus of or perhaps the convergence of some private company incentives paired with authoritarian governments supplying these technologies without any restraint, it leads to a lack of scrutiny on impacts on the ground. And there's no one holding them to account in those places. Unlike here in Europe, even though it's imperfect, there is the mechanism for doing that. In many of the places where we look at around the world, there isn't that mechanism. And so I wonder how we prevent this parallel ecosystem from emerging, particularly in vulnerable democracies, countries of the global south, and so on, where they they can't rely on active oversight and and even transparency to protect their rights. Totally. And in, in some countries, those rights are not even protected in theory. So, for example, a country like Kenya, where I spent a lot of time because I was chief observer for the EU's election observation mission in 2017, On the one hand, there was a big push to digitize the electoral process because people had traumatic experiences with ballot stuffing and, you know, fraud during the elections through sort of well-known and more traditional means. But while the elections were digitized, the registration, the um, documenting of uh, of the results and transmitting scans, for example, to the Electoral Commission, there are no data protection laws in Kenya. And this is not only a matter of sort of global south developed versus developing societies. It's also a matter of those societies and especially companies that are in the lead considering this context. We spoke a little bit today about a topic that you know is very close to my heart, export controls of surveillance technologies. The fact that a lot of these most aggressive hacking, tracking, tracing technologies that are deployed in, by dictatorial regimes against journalists, opposition figures, activists, critical voices are made in democratic societies and there is nothing stopping their export to countries where the rule of law is not even uh, respected, I think is very problematic. And it creates an asymmetry that advantages, that gives an advantage to 
dictators, to repressive regimes, to the ones that are actually repressing the human rights, while in theory, governments, at least in, in most democracies, we have challenges, but let's say most democracies are promoting the respect for human rights. So we've, we've got to start to give depth to those words again, also as the technologies change. So just focusing on, let's say, traditional weapon exports is not enough anymore if, on the other hand, the very aggressive technologies that can be used to more invisibly repress people. Uh, you know, look at, a, look at the demonstrations in Hong Kong right now. You have people completely masking uh, their faces because they're worried about facial recognition technologies, using laser beams to avoid being uh, photographed or, or registered by these uh, surveillance tools that are, that are being used right there. We may not even have to see tanks rolling in the streets to have the same intensity of repression through technological means, uh, by tracking people's every moves, by tracking what people say, uh, preventing freedom after expression. And this is a very, very serious problem. And I believe that it is upon democratic societies to show leadership, to lead by example. And there is a world that we still have to do, uh, you know, huge gap that we have to close to practice what we preach. And just in short order, in terms of the gaps that we need to close, given the complex landscape you've just described, this kind of intersection between the democratic and autocratic world, the way in which technology is flowing seamlessly and advancing and adapting, what sorts of things should democratic societies be thinking about in terms, say, of its civil society interaction on these questions that maybe we haven't taken into account mm -hmm. to date so much? Well, I think civil society is vital. It's vital for holding governments to account, for exposing injustices, holding powerful companies to account. You know, I've been so inspired by civil society and, and some of the people working in that space are immensely courageous, especially as the space for civil society is shrinking, attacks on NGOs, on their funding streams, on their um, outspokenness, you know, exposing corruption, exposing uh, abuse of power, exposing the, um, the violence against people, the repression of minorities, of journalists. I mean, the, the risks that some people take in civil society are, are really inspiring and uh, they deserve uh, protection and support from, from governments in democratic societies and from other civil society actors. It's really important to keep that space open and free and safe. So what they can do is really also be aware of the new risks to themselves, you know, be aware of um, the information ecosystem that they're working in, uh, protecting their devices and the information exchanged, uh, making sure that, that they're up to date with their training, and hopefully uh, to see more focus on the new dimensions in which space for civil society and universal human rights are undermined also by new technologies. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend. So, Maricha, would you like to go first? Yeah, it's um, a very good question. There's many, many interesting things uh, I could recommend, but the work of the Council of Europe when it comes to artificial intelligence and also when it comes to the question of what proper democratic norms, safeguards, principles should be, I think is really important. They just did a uh, round of calls for comments, and I really look forward to the to the latest report that's about to come out on artificial intelligence. Uh, and then um, I was also thinking about this book that Amy Webb wrote, The Big Nine, where she really focuses on 
the biggest tech companies in the United States, but also in China, which I think we have to all understand more about. And um, on the one hand, she sketches the things we could be concerned about in terms of democracy and human rights, but she's also very focused on how we can all be empowered to make sure that that this technological revolution is going to go in the right direction and is, is anchored in principles that are important for those who believe in human rights and democracy. So I've really appreciated her work and uh, I would recommend The Big Nine as well. Thank you. And Chris, how about you? And I'm reading uh, a RAND report that's titled Hostile Social Manipulation, Present Realities and Emerging Trends. It's written by a number of different authors um, and the report centers on what's termed hostile social manipulation. And broadly speaking, it's how states seek to gain competitive advantage by manipulating political, social, and economic conditions in target countries by various informational means. And it really covers a full range of such things, which um, brings to life the extent of the challenges we confront today in this space. And for my part, I'm always playing catch up with my reading. So I'm getting around to the May report on surveillance and human rights written by David Kay, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Uh, the report defines the problem of targeted surveillance from a perspective of human rights law, and it proposes several frameworks for regulation and accountability within the private surveillance industry. Um, and it also calls for tighter regulation. You know, when I think about these issues, I think support for a multi-stakeholder, co-regulatory kind of arrangement is a good start. But it still leaves me wondering what to do about those determined authoritarian regimes who are just comfortable flouting this basic international human rights law to begin with, and so won't have much of a problem with the ancillary principles that are derived from it. And that, to me, is always an open question. And I'd like to express our big thanks to Maricia for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Hope to be back soon. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we suggest following our featured guest on Twitter, at Marietje Schake, and from among her many public appearances, recommend watching her TEDx Eindhoven talk, Why People Should Govern Surveillance Technology, which she delivered earlier this year. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalafil and Marietta Shaki. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on Democracy in the Tech Revolution and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.